do you get that first feature off the page and onto the big screen? Well, we have three producers lined up to explain how they did it. We've gathered together Lauren Dark, who made Warbook, Dominic Buchanan, who made Lilting, and Ray Banthaki, who made Convenience. Each of them will discuss securing investment for bold visions and risky projects, and how to navigate a project from development to release. This session was chaired by Tanya Sagachian. Thanks, Dominic. Um, ben Wishaw, first film. How easy or difficult was that to pull off? <laughs> Quite complicated at times. Easy at other moments because we had a very good script by Hong and um, he was great to work with. Um, getting Ben himself, very easy. However, I don't want you guys to think it is that easy um, <laughs> because it actually isn't. We were an anomaly, but he was at the top of our list and we sent it to him. He had just come off Skyfall, so he was taking a, a, a break. And, um, you know, it's that thing you send it via your casting director to the agent, and the agent um, comes back and says he's a, he, he's a slow read, which basically means um, he might never read it. But you do hope that he does. And interesting things started to happen. We started to hear that he was turning down other films. And he hadn't turned down our film yet. So we're like, OK, like, that's kind of cool. And um, he was in Australia on, on, on a vacation, uh, as I mentioned. So it, with that time delay also, you're, you're just kind of constantly waiting and waiting. And then we found out, OK, like, he actually does like the script. He's read it. He likes it. And um, he'd like to meet you when he gets back to London. And we went on a breakfast date, my director, um, myself, and, and, and Ben. And we were told by our casting director, actually, he, he, he really does like us. So just don't fuck up this breakfast. So that's when it became complicated. <laughs> but um, it, I guess the, 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 the main piece of information on that is actually it was our casting director. She's fantastic, Carmel Cochran. And it was her relationship with the agents and, and um, how she was able to just almost get straight answers and, and get straight through, pierce through that kind of mist. And um, yeah. As Dominic said, he started with a great script. I'm assuming that was what you started with too, but perhaps you can let, let us know how that one began. Yes, um, it was a great script. It was a play actually that Jack had written um, and wanted to adapt. So he had approached uh, his producer, Ivana McKinnon, who'd made the scouting book for boys with him. And um, I was at 16 Films at the time, working with Rebecca O'Brien and Camilla Bray. And we'd just done a project with Ivana, or I'd done a little bit on her film. And so Jack had approached her with the idea, and she was pregnant with her second child, so didn't feel like she could do a micro-budget, but wanted to kind of exec it and stay involved. So she brought it to me at 16 Films, and we started adapting it quite quickly, like with a very specific window to shoot in between uh, another project that Tom was about to shoot which was quite a nice way to do it but yeah there was already like a piece of material that was really really brilliant Great and Ray um, I'm going to ask you to queue up convenience but I also know that that started with you so we'll come back yeah, and uh, certainly. We'll, we'll find the source for that Sure uh, so convenience is a super super micro budget movie a one location comedy um, and essentially I'll quickly pitch a story it's a uh, Essentially a story of two, two lovable idiots that get into trouble with some Russian gangsters. They've got 24 hours to pay the money, so they decide to go and rob a petrol station. But when they get there, they realise that the safe is on a time lock. It doesn't open till 6am, so they decide they're going to tie everyone up, put on their uniforms, and work there the night. 
how did that come about? So, <laughs> it's been a long journey. So, uh, Convenience started uh, many years prior to us shooting the movie. I'd worked on a play at Trafalgar Studios with Adil Akhtar, who is a, an amazing actor. And uh, we were doing this very serious play together uh, about the 7-7 bombings in London. And Adil had a very dramatic role in it, but backstage he was the funniest guy I'd ever met. Like literally made me belly laugh all day long. And, uh, and I was just like, and he, it was before Four Lions, before he'd been recognized from that. And um, I was just like, man, you are the funniest guy on earth. And uh, just, you know, we became really good friends and I just kind of made a pact with him before we left. And I went, one day I'm gonna create a film for me and you to be in together. And then years later, his star was totally risen. He was doing all these big movies and I went back to him and said, I want to do this film, are you ready? And, uh, you know, he said yes. Wow. So different genres, different types of films, different backgrounds. Um, you all produce these as your first productions. What, what do you think a producer does? And what do you think you brought to your specific project? Um, I, I, I just think a producer um, has to create an environment where all the creatives in the film can flourish. Um, certainly for, for me, coming from an acting background and stuff, my, my, my role was mainly creative as a producer. Um, but obviously, you know, you have to see the thing from beginning to end. But um, I particularly enjoyed the creative. Obviously, we were creating a, a script from, from just from an idea. And so I've been on this journey for kind of three years now. And... Um, it's been the most tiring, incredible experience. But we, I, I, I'm, as people fall off, uh, you're the one that kind of keeps it all the way through and uh, you just have to keep that drive. And um, I'm not sure I'd do it again for that sort of budget, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think any of us would, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think producers come in many forms. Like, I think sometimes producers finance and then have people to help them put the film together in production or they develop and you know I grew up in professionally in a place where there were lots of kind of real hands-on producers so I guess I've learned that I, I think at 16 films it was like people would stay with the process from kind of start to finish so develop a story or an idea um, and then go out and try and raise some money for it and try and be involved really involved in the casting and the location finding and the crewing up and then the post-production right up until sales and distribution so it's sort of full cycle but I think lot you know people do it differently as well definitely I think what's interesting what you just mentioned the way that I've, I've, I've come through I was always led to believe there are two different types of producers there's the more business orientated <clears throat> producer that deals with the finance and there's one that's just a creative producer and I think unfortunately sometimes people latch onto that term creative producers mm. and label you as such and actually I, I wouldn't put myself in that bracket I, you know, I've learned both sides and I continue to learn both sides um, fortunately for me I actually produced or was part of a team that produced a feature before Lilting actually called Gimme the Loot but it was an American film shot in New York and um, Lilton was the first film that I actually produced myself solo. So I actually had to come to terms with the fact that I needed to go out and raise that finance, mm. as well as keep an eye on all that creative stuff. So that was a very steep learning curve, but a great education on doing both. So I would never put myself, not that this has been asked or put out there, but I'd never put myself <coughs> solely as one or the other, because mm. I know how to do both. And, and I want to learn how to do both better. 
in some ways. Well, I think in this day and age, you actually have to do mm. everything. Yeah. I think the truth of the matter is that um, you can't rely on one skill and one skill alone in the same way that you can't really rely on one medium and one medium alone. I mean, we're talking here about raising money for feature films, but in actual fact, the distinction between micro-budget, big-budget, low-budget, television, all forms of content and drama are blurring so rapidly that in actual fact, I think moving forward for your generation and for, for you, being able to do everything is going to become more and more important. Yeah, and the producer's role has expanded. So, as you both alluded to, you know, you, we, are, we are usually the first and last on and off a project, aside from the writer-director if they've originated that material. But in this day and age, with the digital landscape, we're being asked to do even more than we were, you know, what producers prior to us were doing, because it, it continues the life cycle of a film. You hope furthers. But to what degree do you think your um, opportunity to make your first film was predicated on the experience you had before you became a producer? So whatever the journey was from wanting to make films in your bedroom as a teenager to actually being given an opportunity to make a film. Is that the most important journey, the, the journey from dream to reality? And if so, what did you learn from that experience and how did you get there? question mm. <laughs> um, I think it's all important I think before I was a producer I worked in different parts of the film industry and um, it gave me an almost 360 viewpoint of the film industry and I was quite fortunate to do some of that in America actually so I got to see both sides of the Atlantic and um, <coughs> understand the marketplace a little differently um, in terms of what, mean, what matters to them and, and, and the idea of of the value of your film and, and how it works in film festivals and all these other things. Um, so that was important to me, without a doubt, and, and, and the companies that I worked for gave me that insight and, and some of that knowledge. Mm. Yeah, I trained as a producer by assisting producers, so I think that was really helpful because for like nearly five years it was just going through the whole cycle of films on much bigger budgets, so when it came to this, I kind of had to work out what we could strip away because there was not as much resource as, as the experiences I'd had before, but I found it incredibly useful. Um, and also to have, a, to have a home, so to have the support of 16 films was really, really um, kind of essential, I feel like. I, don't, I sometimes don't know how I would have done it without them. I had this amazing boss who, who I took Warbrook to, and she said, yeah, give it a go. Like, if you can get it off the ground, you could, let's do it here. And that having a home and some, you know, like being able to ask our accountant questions, being able to ask more experienced producers questions has just been the thing that really got me through that, I think. I, uh, I guess for me, uh, producing came from a place of wanting to make my own movies, came from a place of being frustrated as an actor and the opportunities that were available to me. You know, instead of sitting there and moaning about that, I just decided I was just going to go and create, you know, and... Um, so I dabbled in producing, you know, I've been doing it for many years in terms of kind of more exec producer roles or co-producing and kind of learning. Um, and then, <clears throat> yeah, so it was from a place of frustration as an actor and I just went, well, the phone's not going to ring for those roles because no one sees me in that way and I'm not classically leading man material, so I'm going to go and create that. And, um, and so part of convenience, part of that whole plan was to kind of do something a little bit different and actually make 
put two Asian guys in leading roles that are not defined by their race. And I thought that was really important as well. And it was genuinely, Adil was the best actor for the role and I was the best actor for the other role because it was written for us. So, um, and we don't really allude to their, uh, you know, their, their, their background, um, ethnic background, and that was important as well. But it's interesting because irrespective of the genre that each of you have picked to work in, all three films are very challenging. You are actually counterculture films, um, whether it's the um, uh, gay relationship in Lilting or the politicised angle of War Book, the fact that you're tackling a big subject that needed to be tackled at that moment in time and still does, or, as you say, casting two Asian guys in uh, leading roles where those roles wouldn't be written for them if you didn't write them yourselves. Um, how much was your desire to, to make those specific stories what propelled you into being able to raise the finance for these specific projects? I had been trying to make a documentary about um, the lack of young people in the CND, that more wasn't really getting off the ground, and that when that material came along and I'd been so... It was just subject matter that really interested me, so I feel like that, yeah, that is so important because it was enough to kind of carry... Like, you need to kind of love it enough that it's going to take maybe one, two, three or four years, you know, from start to finish. So, yeah, it was really important for it to be... Like, I, I, I suppose... We had a kind of unique situation where we didn't sort of take it out and try lots and lots of different places for finance. It was pretty, like we had a window and I felt like that's the beauty and the freedom of the micro budget is that you can, you don't have to kind of prove its commercial ability necessarily beyond kind of making that person's money back. But um, we found a company called Archer's Mark who make lots of films now and have a full development slate, but at the time... They'd made a really brilliant feature documentary and they were about to break through Brits, I think, in your year. And they wanted to get into drama and were looking, for par- looking to partner up with the industry as well. So we took Warbrook to them at a time when they were just ready to kind of make a film and <coughs> wanted to collaborate. So it was kind of... Um, we made it together between 16 and Archer's Mark and Stray Bear. So they sort of one very simple... financed it, Yeah, them and the tax credit, yeah. And you worked back from the budget that you had available to you and you negotiated your deals accordingly. Yeah, I mean, we had... The advantage of being in one room. So it was finding a location and then casting the actors and then creating a structure, which, like, weirdly, I found kind of one of the most complicated things was creating a structure, which is like the recruitment waterfall and how it works so that you explain it to people as as something that makes sense as a structure, what's going in, what everyone's getting paid and what they're going to get in the back end. And then once you kind of figured that out, it was a fairly sort of um, socialist pay scale. (laughs) Going back to what you mentioned, you do have to be passionate because otherwise, like you said, you know, we're living with these projects for so long, um, especially as the producer or, or, or the writer-director, so that we as the core filmmaking team will be under so much duress through that period that the amount that you would be paid if you are going to be paid, which rarely happens on a micro-budget film, um, it, it doesn't correlate to the hours that you're putting in, the stress that you're undertaking. Um, Everything else, you know. So for me, what, like the honest answer is I wasn't looking for a film like Lilting. And what I mean by that is I wasn't looking for that subject matter. I wasn't looking for those themes. But I could respond to it. So when I read that script, I responded to it because I was like, wow, you know, um, I connect to this on a couple of different levels. And um, I then met Hong and we had a conversation. And that he, he kind of helped deepen that for me. 
How did that script come to you? <coughs> we, so what happened was I was um, off the back of, not actually, uh, Kimmy Dalut and, and, and Lilting happened around the same time. So there was this thing called the Film London Microwave Scheme, and I was um, applying for it with another project, actually. So I had this other project, and I think when I realized um, maybe I was starting to think like a producer, is um, I started talking to one of the coordinators at Film London, and I said, well, can I put another project in? She said, well, no one's ever asked me that question, so yeah, if you, if you can find another project. And I was like, okay, I didn't have another project. I, was, I just you know, asked, I was curious. And um, she then put me in touch with Hong. She said, there's a filmmaker who does not have a producer, but he's looking for a producer. Mm, the coordinator is. Yeah. And um, she's a wonderful woman called Tessa Inkler. She's no longer there, unfortunately. But um, she put me in touch with him, and I watched her. She said, have a look at his shorts. His shorts are played at Sundance in Berlin and, and see what you think, and gave me the kind of short synopsis on it, because he, ha he actually hadn't written the script at that point. Um, much like um, Jack, it was a play, but Hong's was a shorter play. So I remember reading it and thinking, okay, this is interesting, watch the shorts. And I thought, well, he's definitely talented. And met him and just thought, you know, wow. And he then said to me, you know, I'm looking for a producer. I'm talking to a few people. The deadline was in three weeks from the date that we met. I said, can you write the script in time? He said, yes. And I think that was, the, that was an interesting thing because we had to trust each other. Because mm. he had to trust that I could put the application together and I had to trust that you'd write the script, and also the script would be good enough. So, That's I mean, it sounds like a, you know one of those stories that actually really did happen that way, and it worked out for the best. So, yeah. But I think trust is one of the key. Uh, you can't make a film if you don't trust your collaborators, no. and whether it's a micro-budget film or a huge film, trust is one of the most important components. Trust and talent, obviously, um, of, of any makeup of relationships. And, and I, I think sense of ambition actually as well. Mm, mm. I'd, I'd add that to it. And I think films need to be willed into existence, and mm -hmm. someone absolutely has to have the willpower to will it into existence. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the producer, although it's great if it is the producer, because the producer's carrying it from the beginning to the end. But as you say, the ambition at the beginning um, can make all the difference, can't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I kind of made sure from, from the off that everyone that was involved in this film knew everyone we were interviewing to get involved uh, in terms of crew that knew what they were getting into, that we were making a film for £80,000 and it was going to be hard and people would be expected to work overtime and the conditions weren't going to be great and there will be nine guys sharing a, one room in a hotel. It was, it was insane. But for me, it was like a lot of the time <coughs> when we were interviewing people, people couldn't commit to that and they might have been you know, the most qualified or whatever, but we weren't, we were just looking for people that we knew that we could create, as cliched as it sounds, like a family kind of unity and that we'd all kind of back each other up no matter what and there was a sense of trust. And I also kind of came up with a, an idea that we should, in terms of profit share, that everyone should, every single person working on that movie, from the runner making teas to, you know, heads of department, would have a share in the movie as well, you know, to, to, to help balance off that, you know, you know, make everyone as passionate as you are about it. And, uh, and that seemed to really, really work. And I think people looked upon that favourably and, and, and liked that. And, and it just, you know, still to this day, I have crew members from that film 
And the conditions were horrible. It was three weeks of night shoots, um, stuck in the arse end of Wales with the potent smell of petrol every night. You know, so we weren't getting sunlight. We were smelling petrol all the time. It was crazy circumstances and people were sharing rooms. However, I still have people come to me this day, even though they've worked on much bigger movies, and they turn around and say, I've never had more fun than working on convenience. Yeah, we did the same thing where we interviewed, when we were interviewing HODs and saying, maybe we could try to find people that would, like, so that all of the roles, like everyone involved in the film would get something out of this. Sure. So maybe it's like, that's going to be a bit difficult because it's maybe not going to be your usual grip or your, you know, like, mm. but maybe we could find someone who actually gets something out of this too. So it's not the kind of dynamic of us being like, you know, please yeah. do this huge, huge favour. Like, even though it is still a huge, huge favour because you're, I don't know, if you're doing a micro budget, you're paying people minimum wage. So you're like always so grateful. But sometimes a, a feature credit can be helpful for them too. And, and, and I think that makes for a happier set in a way, if everybody's kind of up for what you're trying to do rather than thinking of it as just a pay drop. Yeah, see it as a stepping stone for everybody. And I think people have seen the fruits of that already. But you three are all lucky in that you were all in the business mm. already. So you had contacts, you had access to talent, you probably understood what the structure of making a film was, even if you were making a micro-budget version of it. For, for people who don't even know how to begin, what do you think is the best way of learning? Is it by making a short film and just going and doing it and begging and borrowing and steal, stealing? Is it by being an assistant? Is it by having a different role in the business? Or is, <coughs> is it whatever means, whichever way works um, for any individual? Or film school? I think, like, I don't know about anyone here, but I felt like a little bit when you come out of university and you're just trying to get just do it any way that you can in a way so whether that I, I felt like I got quite lucky early on and got some runner jobs and did and kind of learned the set that way and learned a bit about production but if I hadn't managed that I probably would have tried to go to film school you know and, and had like a different experience and um, yeah I feel like there are lots of um, connections and websites and crew pools and ways that people can meet now that there probably wasn't when I was first starting that makes kind of crewing up shorts and a bit easier and people have really understood the value of mentoring and um and and group do you think yes oh. and no oh come on then. <laughs> no but i think but it's interesting you say mentor it didn't strike me until just now um i think yes everyone um you know it, it is a by any means necessary mindset in the very beginning it has to be um in a privileged position that i am now i actually I'm in two minds because I think they, you guys and, and, and feel the people that aren't in the room, the filmmakers that aren't so fortunate to be in this room, um, should just make stuff. Because mm -hmm. I think you have to make stuff. And I think the, where we are now, the landscape of the film industry obviously is a lot more accessible. So I think you're right in that respect, without a doubt. Um, but then actually I, I, I do think that it's worth getting to know what we deem as the system. Um, Getting to know, obviously, your hair, Vafta Guru, you understand this, but getting to know the BFI um, network or Creative England um, a little bit better and just work out if it works for you or not. Because it, it, in some ways, to be very crass, it's free money. You know, it's public funded, so why not apply for it if you can or get to know um, how you can apply for it? It's a longer process, but sometimes people need that. Some people don't need that. Some people can work outside the system. But the reason I say this is because I've met some 
aspiring filmmakers along the way, and sometimes they're quite bitter because they're like, oh, well, you know, that thing over there, I don't get it, and I've never got into it, and I've been making this stuff. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I understand your pain and everything like that, but it goes both ways. You know, it needs to be some reciprocity. Um, you have to balance it, I think. I think your idea of like do, making your micro budgets as well, with there are so many great schemes now, like iFeatures or Film London Microwave. And that idea of if you're a producer looking for material and you don't quite know what, which agents to ask or what, like maybe <coughs> that idea of asking kind of those schemes as well, if they've got filmmakers coming to them that are yeah, saying, I need producers exactly. and I don't know where to look, like they can help Matchmake as well, I, I think. It's quite tricky now in this climate without a mega actor or a kind of slot in can. Do you know what I mean? So like actually then you're in a space of creative distribution where you might even have to devise your own, find your own way to get it out there. And I feel like there is, so, you know, like now there is even people, there's like a kind of new job, job being created, it seems like, of kind of an, like an outreach producer or uh, people who do, um, who come in and kind of help you devise those releases. So I feel like there's lots of people doing it themselves. I think but, you have to... You have to be open-minded. I mean, I'm very fortunate that my films have gone on to festivals and been picked up by sales agents and been picked up by distributors um, to very different successes. So Lilton, which you just saw the clip of, um, we applied for Cannes and we didn't get in. That's a whole different story, but you know, you, we remained undeterred and. We, at around the same time of not getting into Cannes, um, got a great um, sales agent through my relationship and the director's relationship. And um, they're called Protagonist. And Protagonist came aboard and, and, and loved the film and said, you know, we, we have a, a vision for it and pitched us that vision. And after that, they were able to, after Cannes actually, the Sundance programmers had come to London and they were able to show, and uh, pitch the film to the Sundance programmers who said, you know, we'd love to see it. So we screened it for them. And, um, you know, this is a, a, a scenario that does not happen that often. We screened it to those programmers who really liked the film and invited the film to the festival six months early. Wow. So halfway through the year, they said, we love this film, we want to invite you. Like, it's an exclusive office. So you can't go to any other festival. You have to just commit now. Do you want to commit? We said yes very quickly. Um, but it was that thing in committing, being like, well, like what about other festivals? Or because you, you start to go on that specific path. And it's not to say we were being dismissive or Sundance because it was great for us. And um, you then get into other thoughts about, okay, well, we're going to Sundance. And that whole festival is focused around that North American sale, so to sell to a US distributor, because not that many foreign distributors go to Sundance, they go to Berlin, which is a few weeks later. And you know, we went to Sundance, had a great premiere. And in my I head is- it as well. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we did, so we, we opened Sundance, we, we opened World Dramatic Competition, uh, which was another crazy thing, because what happens is you get into a festival and you're, focus is, you know, your, your priorities change as it gets closer, so you want to know, okay, what, when is my film premiere in? And you have a sales agent and you can kind of use them as a conduit, but everyone wants that Friday night, Saturday night, the first weekend slot, because that's where most people go to festivals. So we were asking them just before Christmas, 
you know, have they given us a slot yet? And I, I remember they said, um, my sales agent said, no, but we're going to check in with them. So I was like, okay, great. And I had this missed call from the sales agent, and I called them back, and he said, we got a call from Sundance, and they said, um, how about opening? <laughs> so, <laughs> and once again, I, I, I know it sounds, you know, it, it's very unique. It doesn't happen that often. So I was just like, yeah, of course. He said, well, great, because we've already said yes. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and by the way, that's the first time and probably the only time that I'd want my sales agent to go ahead without my approval. It's very important that you do get your approval straight. So um, we, we opened the festival, and that was very key because as a film that has some foreign language aspects to it, although it's an English film, that place at the festival became quite key. So we knew that we'd get that premiere, we'd have a specific amount of eyeballs on the film, those distributors, you know, going back to what I said about the North American cell. So it really became about that North American cell because you're opening the festival. And you all hear those stories about films that get picked up for X amount of millions. By what uh, I did not think my film was going to get picked up for millions, but you were hoping that it was going to get picked up for something. So anyway, um, and I promise I will answer the question. I am coming to it. Um, <laughs> we premiered. We had a great premiere. Um, there was this other film that premiered just before. It was a North American premiere. And um, a lot of this buzz was going on about this film. And we started to hear from our sales agent that not all the distributors were coming over to our screening. So now you're thinking, shit, like, what the fuck is this? Um, excuse my bad language. So, you know, we're still happy we have a premiere at Sundance. The, the room is almost sold out, goes great. Um, the other subsequent screenings go great. And um, we keep hearing about this other film and the other film. Our time has now passed. We um, then sell the film the week after the festival. And by the way, the film that played against us was Whiplash. I don't know if you've seen Whiplash. And um, ironically, I work for the company that produced Whiplash now. So we were never gonna, it was never going to work that way. Um, but the reason I'm saying all of this is because we then sold the film after Sundance. And then that was great for the North American sale, but we still didn't have all the other territories. So we went to Berlin, and the sales agent said, you know, we're going to try our very best. And... You know, once again, you get into that mindset, you're waiting to hear back feedback and the festival's going, you haven't got any feedback about the sales and nothing's happened. You're thinking the worst case scenario and afterwards um, they come back from Berlin, they sent us an update. They said, well, these 10 territories are interested in your film. Right. And you're like, okay, great. So the reason I say all of this is because it is quite unique to Lilting that it happened that way. But if it didn't happen that way and my other films that I have produced um, that are a similar size you do need to think about what it means to you, what your film means to you, and what you want it to do, because that idea of theatrical now, is, it, it's, it's, it's not a given, you know, it's a luxury. And even if you do get the theatrical, the amount of money that you're ending up being indebted to for that theatrical through the, you know, the P&A spend, it, sometimes it's not necessarily worth it. So going back to what Lauren said, and I didn't mean to hog this answer, but you do have to think about, okay, well, can you do the self-distribution? There are other companies like um, Colony or R-Screen. Mm. Um, you can actually speak to Picturehouse. Picturehouse do Discover Tuesday. So you can say to them, you know, um, would you mind selecting this film for Discover Tuesdays and use that as part of your theatrical and then do a, distrib uh, a digital distribution strategy. It's Discovery Tuesdays that it plays in every cinema 
in their network on a Tuesday. Yeah, cool. yeah. So I think they've got 18 venues or something like that. So my most recent film, King Jack, did that. And um, we used that in tandem with Vertigo. So we had a very small, mm. limited theatrical release and went on to VOD and got the Discover Tuesdays. And, you know, it, it's just one exa another example of how to do it. Did any of you have distributors when you started production? No, um, we... we we um, didn't get distribution on the film, actually. And uh, I think it's a really important thing to talk about. We, we ended up self-distributing the movie because there was no... Uh, well, there, there was small offers, but not right for the movie. You know, we knew the film deserved to be released theatrically and we weren't prepared to go for a small DVD release. Um, but, you know, having said that, everyone came down to the screening and watched the movie and everyone called us into meetings saying how much they loved it, but for whatever reason... Um, they didn't want to distribute a movie, and which was really frustrating in a way because the film had done really well. It got recognised by BAFTA, and, and um, <coughs> but I think we're in a re really tough climate now. You know, if you don't have a big movie star in your movie, I mean, we're talking about micro budgets here, which is very unlikely we're going to get those big movie stars in our films. Um, we have to start thinking from the beginning. I think it's now the producer's job to start thinking about the projects we're going to pick up and how we are going to market them from the off and choosing those projects and having a vision for marketing it because we can't rely on traditional distribution now and especially when we're talking about micro budgets so I think it's really important when you're choosing those scripts to actually have a vision of how it's going to market because the likelihood is that you may have to self-distribute and so it's good to have an idea and I wish I'd kind of I guess in a way had that foresight before we'd got into it I just kind of thought well we're making a great movie and we're going to get picked up and, yeah. and actually the truth is it wasn't that easy and despite the accolades we received we still didn't get traditional yeah. distribution and so the reason the film is taking so long to bring out to an audience is because we then had to go on that journey I then had to go on that journey as a producer where I had to raise money and learn how to now distribute a film mm. and that took a whole heap of time and, um, and that was a, a real kind of trial and everything and, and I've learned a lot from it and I know if I had to do it again what I do know is that when I go to raise finance for the film I will have a contingency in place in case I need to release the film mm. myself and, and also develop a script that I know I have a marketing vision for as well. I feel like I needed a bit of help with that side yeah. of things though. We, um, the, did you work with Mia Bays at Film London? Yeah. Um, she really kindly consulted for us when I was just like, right, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And she's a total like, distribution genius. And um, we, we'd screened to sales agents after we'd finished the film and it got picked up by K5 International. And so we kind of did a few festivals and then had this opportunity to screen as part of BBC4. And they were doing this summer nuclear season, which seemed like such a no-brainer of an opportunity because um, it was curated. And it was like, I think it was like a nuclear documentary or film every week for a month, on the anniversary of Hiroshima. And so we then had this situation where we had a kind of TV air date and not very much time to get together a release. And, not, you know, and that also makes it not that attractive for a... You know, it's a hard sell anyway for theatrical, but mm. you know, uh, that makes it quite tricky. So we ended up working with... Um, Vertigo took ancillary rights, and so they ended up sort of helping us a little bit. And we put together... Um, I think it was like 10 event screenings the kind of weekend before. So it was a bit of a day and date, and it was like lots of... Um, we got 
um, my colleague Ivana, her sister does these amazing film nights called Rich Pickings. And so she, and it's always like on a different theme. So she did this thing where she got a panel of psychologists to talk about decision making and how people turn the room. And, um, and then screened Warbook. And Jack and Tom did lots of kind of debating and Q&As. And we got nuclear specialists to come in, in Oxford and Cambridge to kind of come and talk about um, policy and, and international policy. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it ended up happening. But I wouldn't say that was ever the plan going into it. It kind of was something that happened quite quickly. And I sort of feel like I don't, there's not much in my arsenal here or like my training for this. I was kind of learning that bit the first time around. Yeah. Mm. But I think it's interesting, when I started out in the 90s, there were so few films, British films, made that if you actually got a film made, mm. it was likely that you would get the film mm -hmm. distributed mm. or released in a relatively good slot on television. Whereas, and also, there wasn't the technological ability to make stuff as easily as there is now with the emergence of um, you know, films on iPhones, to, to say the least. So the challenges that you're facing with the beginning of your career is very different. To the you know, our challenge mm. was um, w was different. I mean, it was impossible to raise finance, but you probably had the distributor built in if yeah. you did raise finance, mm. so you knew you would at least get a release. Having said that, there's um, such a huge appetite for content out there. I think the key question for you is why should anyone want to see my film if I can figure out what it is about my film which requires exposure and which I can sell, there probably is a way of getting people to see it. You just have to be very clear about how, you know, what distinguishes it in the marketplace, what's good about it, what kind of exposure you need, how you'll sell it, and to be inventive in the way that all of you have been in terms of release patterns. Um, if you were to teach your younger self something from having done it, what is it you would try and tell yourself now? <laughs> Everything will be all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think it's a tricky one. I, it, it's such a painful thing producing a film, making a film um, with little money that you often lose sight sometimes of what you're doing or for what purpose you're doing it. And I think you, if, if I had to give my younger self advice, it, it'd be to kind of, you know, st stick to that vision, persevere. But listen at the same time because you, you should listen. You, the, the, sometimes there is good advice out there, or um, you know, if if you're hearing no's, sometimes it's about well, what, why are you hearing those no's mm. as opposed to the no? Mm. You know, um, obviously, as a filmmaker, as a producer, you will hear no constantly until you are able to be in a position where you have got a yes, and then you, that yes turns into you know finance and you then start saying no to people <laughs> as a producer because you're on set, you're turning things down, you're saying no to your filmmaker, you're saying no, you can't have that. I'm going to be extreme and silly for a second. You can't have that helicopter shot um, because you can't afford to. Um, but to downscale that, it's kind of saying, well, you know, you can't have that steady camp because we can't afford to. You know, so what is the, how do we work this out? So yeah, something like that, maybe. So feedback is key. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's actually to distill that feedback, though, because you can't be swayed. You're on this journey, you know. Um, your single-mindedness has to get you through, but you, you do have to open up at certain points and, and surround yourself with good people, you know. And I think, so if you've surrounded yourself with good people, that feedback actually 
should be valuable. Mm. I don't know. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, Ray, from your perspective as an actor as well, you would have seen so much material coming your way that just didn't look right, feel right, that you also give your, your actor self is giving your producer or director or writer self feedback yeah. too because you, you're talking to yourself about what is there, what isn't there, what you want. Sure, T- totally aware of what, as an actor, you know, you are aware of what's out there and what's going on. And also, for me, it's always, um, when I read scripts, um, it's, it's the one thing that I never read enough of which I think is exceptionally good is dialogue and so I, when, I'm, when I'm reading a script as an actor um, so what, essentially what I'm saying is I look for that same thing when I'm producing things and for me dialogue is the most important like writers that have that fluidity of dialogue for me that is the number one thing um, and so I don't even know what I'm saying what, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you tell your younger self? yeah okay what would I tell my younger self? Um, I think they're more practical things, having learned from convenience. Um, the practical things of, of uh, probably sourcing distribution from the off, that, or exploring that mm-hmm. first, and if not, coming up with a distribution plan if you have to do it yourself before we shoot anything. Um, and then uh, practical stuff like never do three weeks of night shoots. <laughs> um, uh, and again, I think what we did really well on this is look after your cast and crew yeah. and, and really engage with people and hire people that from the off there's complete transparency uh, but on the circumstances that you're going to be watching, uh, working in. And for me, that is really, really crucial, really crucial for the whole thing. And um, so that, for me, it's like learning. I've learned practical things. I th- yeah, I think it's quite hard to work out sometimes what you've learned. I don't know about you, but I quite romanticise the past. So I'm like, it was a total joy <laughs> to make Warwick. But actually, probably at the time, I was like sick with anxiety. But I think the... Um, I'd say I wasn't quite prepared for the... Um, like, how much the sort of distribution of it felt like making the whole film again. Like, I thought making it was the thing. and mm. one, You know, and actually... Yeah, devising a kind of plan for it as you are making it is probably... Mm. Well, I think, yeah, for, for the guys in the room, it's, it's key that you, you do... Because financiers are asking these questions now, so... Well, I, I have to say, I added the question to the application form at the Film Council and the BFI. Mm. What, what is your strategic plan mm. for reaching audiences? Um, and I realised that distribution was hard, but I wanted every producer to at least ask themselves, OK, I'm going to this trouble to make these films. Now, having made it, what's my plan to get someone to see it? And sometimes it, it is only a, fi- a film festival that you can aspire to, and that's a great thing if you get a screening at a film festival and you don't know what's going to happen beyond that. But in actual fact, I think we all work so hard to make films because we want people to see them. So if we, <laughs> we're not going to get the exposure, then we need to ask ourselves why or how we can circumvent that. Yeah. Another, oh, sorry. No, go on. This is one of the most important pieces of advice that I can give. I wouldn't have told... Well, I, I kind of knew this, but I needed to be a bit more explicit. And to tell you in the room, filmmakers as writer, directors or producers, get more coverage. You do not understand how important it is to get more coverage. If your filmmaker says no, make them do it. It's because you're going to get into the edit room and if you're working with financiers who are like, actually, 
we don't like the way this is looking in this particular scene. And you've got, no, you've got, there's nowhere to go. And your film suffers as a result. And because you have these financiers who have backed the film, if it doesn't perform for certain reasons, you know, it's going to come back to you as the filmmaker. I think there's also, I do find sometimes real value in creating a window for it to get made because there's kind of a, always a reason why it mm-hmm. can't get made or, you know, like, it's a, I'm making a film now where we've just developed for kind of two years and before that our co-producers developed two years, so four, four kind of total. It's like every film's totally different but when you get near to financing and getting ready for production, creating a window where you're going to shoot it and sort of like make everyone feel that the train's leaving the station and they should just <laughs> jump on. That's true, it was it's always the advantage of television that there was yeah. a slot that yeah. had to be filled so you know, there was a momentum to get it going. I'm just curious, Ray in particular, um, just sort of like your festival strategy, so what, what advice can you give sort of as like a young filmmaker that's made a feature film, like festivals to choose, like where to premiere, you know, there's so many of them like out there, what's, what's the best thing to do? That's a really good question because that, that's another point actually I should brought up, I think that's where we failed actually, I think we didn't have any advice on a festival strategy and um, we <coughs> perhaps were a bit gun-ho in going with we got rejected from the big festivals which we expected anyway it's a super low budget movie and, um, and then we should have really had a strategic plan in place and we didn't I kind of and I don't know if there are people like this who are film festival experts. Yeah, there are. There are. Um, so I wish I'd kind of known that because I feel we were a bit gun-ho in accepting the festivals that we did accept because we were just anxious to get our film out there. And um, in hindsight, I would have done that very differently um, and been really strategic about it and looked at the festivals and, and you know, learn a bit more about how important a world premiere is and how important a North American premiere is. And that's something I learned from this whole process. And how did you know what the big festivals were? Well, just from... from like, just from... Yeah, so, you know, kind of Cannes, Sundance, Berlin, yeah. you know, the usual. And um, London Film Festival, of course. And so we... Yeah, so I... I, I now you say there are people out there that can... That are it's a select experts. bunch, though. I mean, I, yeah. and, and, and it's something that has happened more recently. They didn't necessarily sure. exist three or four years ago. Um, I, I think film festivals are key, but you have to also work out where you think your film will play and where it will survive. So even though, <coughs> you know, you should always aim for the top festivals, you know, a Sundance, a Cannes, a whatever, but sometimes you don't get in and, and, and you shouldn't take it personally because sometimes they're just... The programmers are formulating that particular festival for a specific reason in yeah. a specific way. Mm. So if you don't get in, it's not necessarily because of your film. And you should think about the tier A. So basically, what one word of advice is do a list and break it into tiers. So there's tier A, there's tier B, um, C and D. If your film premieres at a tier A festival, you can't premiere at another tier A festival. You have to drop down to tier B. So you have to start knitting together your actual route, you know, and one affects the other. So if you go to Sundance, you, as your world premiere, it's going to be hard to go to a Berlin or a Cannes with your world premiere because they only take world premieres. So they have to take it for other reasons. It has to be very strong. So you might have to look at something else, you know. Um, 
And obviously we're talking about micro-budget experiences here, mm. but you know, if you've got a film that's absolutely going to play in a multiplex or needs studio distribution, look at the difference that that um, entails and what that's going to mean for the nature of your production budget, the kind of people you cast in it, um, how you're going to position the script in order to get it made at a level where it can compete in a multiplex because those are even more competitive uh, screening slots in a way than yeah. a festival or an art house distribution moment. So. Um, this is just a general question, a bit of advice. I'm an aspiring writer and I just wanted to understand the relationship between um, writing and producing and how you guys come across new writers... Um, obviously I know the usual route is an agent or something like that but for someone kind of starting out writing a short or a feature how would how would you guys be aware of, of new writers mm. well at Stray Bear we generally accept material from agents that we kind of know so that so they send us material like quite specifically to what we're kind of like our remit or what we're looking for it does become quite hard to read unsolicited material just because it's kind of hard to keep up with the stuff that, that is on the reading pile already. But I do think... Um, I always say, like, BBC Writers Room as a kind of first port of call just because, that, you know, they, it's, such a, it's such a great community. And from that, you can kind of go on to... Like, at least, like, agents can then read your work and build and up some material. I can also advise on that front. I, I would say it's really useful to have a, an agent as a writer because they will know who the best people to pair you up with might be. If you're having difficulty getting noticed by an agent, think about who the agent's assistants are. Maybe some of them are looking to build their own list and therefore more predisposed to read new material than somebody whose name you've heard of. Uh, for, at any level of the film business that you're at, bear in mind that if you can find a peer group or an age group who you can spend the rest of your life working with, it's it's great because what you want to do is work with as many people again and again as possible because there's a shorthand. So, um, you know, find whoever the like-minded people are with your kind of taste, whatever they're doing, even if they're not experienced enough yet, but they've got the kind of ambition and drive which you think you would want them to exhibit when de- demonstrating your work and, um, and just get them to read whatever you've got. I think, can I just add one yeah. other thing? I think... Um, it's kind of obviously tricky if you're uh, a young writer, a new writer. So if you're writing shorts, write as many shorts as you can so that people can make those shorts into films. Those films can be seen. Um, and as has been touched here, the kind of writer's rooms, or there's some competitions, if you are also writing plays, go you know, to like the Royal Court and they have their own schemes and, 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 and try and put them through there. And just keep writing. Yeah, I think keep writing is, is, is a huge thing to say. I, I, I was Jimmy McGovern's script editor, and I remember Jimmy saying to me quite early on, he said, you know, I, you, you write all this stuff when you're starting out and uh, no-one wants to read it, uh, and it goes into the bottom of the drawer, and then you become famous and you're not quite sure what you want to write anymore because you've disconnected with the thing that started you <coughs> out, and you go back and look in that drawer, and then you're reminded of some of the things that... Um, that fired you in the first place. So you, you, if you're a writer, you can't write enough. Keep writing, write new stuff. No self-respecting agent would probably take you on without looking at two samples. So have two. If they're different genres, you should try and um, show that you're uh, able to work in more than one genre um, and just make it as good as you possibly can get it to be and listen to your mum, your best friend, your 
worst enemy when they say this doesn't work or it's boring or I, um, I stopped here. Just listen to them and keep perfecting it if you can. Okay. Hi, um, I'm in a similar position to Ray. Um, so I've come up as an actor. Um, I joined Rain Dance, um, started writing, just staff production company. So I wrote, produced, and had to act in a short. The producer kind of fell away because she was working on features. I ended up having to do it myself, um, which was a baptism of fire. But it was it was brilliant actually because it just made me realise I want to do this as well. And um, where I'm at now, so last year I um, went to Cannes Short Film Corner, put the short in, it was great. Um, so I've developed it in the meantime, and now I'm at the stage, I'm going out again, not sure why, well, I actually have a plan, but it's hopefully, possibly to meet a sales agent, I'm going to be emailing them, I've got like two weeks, <laughs> mm. emailing them, and kind of, I've got one sort of, how like getting a mentor as well, because I'd like to co-produce. I think for Can, it's actually really hard to meet salespeople in opening weekend, because they're just selling. Yeah. I think if you That's can go... Maybe if you want to go opening weekend for fun, it's great. Like, there's great things going on opening weekend, but just, like, try to make your meetings after that when actually the buyers have gone home. Mm-hmm. Um, guiding lights, back to breakthrough breaks. Like, there are lots of really cool mentoring um, schemes around now as well, I think. You could try to apply to one of those. Or I would just... Maybe you could just ask. Well, yeah, I could just make a list of the producers that you admire or the filmmakers that you mm-hmm. admire and, and see if you can get through to them and just, you know, ask small first... And, you know, just say, look, can I have 15 minutes of your time and work out if you really want them to be your mentor anyway, say that you're looking for a mentor. And work out, why they, work out why they would, what, why they might want to help your particular project because if you look at what they're currently doing, it might, may or may not make sense for them to give their time to your project. And if it does make sense, then they're more likely to say yes than those who may wish you well but not have the time to help Yeah, I mean, any advice them. is better than none. <laughs> okay. I was wondering about uh, distribution in a uh, post-theatrical landscape. So um, how do you try and stand out, um, you know, online or or Netflix or whatever? Like, do you just try and have the coolest poster or how do you make an impression um, in a non-conventional release? There are quite a few things. I mean, um, it is an often said cliche, but it's quite true. Try and have the title of your film not start with a T because it'll be listed towards the bottom. You know, so think of things like that. But also, I think, you know, yes, you want to have cool materials, so a, a good poster um, could work. But you have to understand that if it goes online, it's, about, it's your job to make it stand out. It's not the platform's job. You know? It's not necessarily Netflix or Amazon's job to make it stand out. Um, so you have to think about how you want that. So I think something that was talked about earlier is quite interesting, the idea of events. And if you can have events surrounding your film, actually that can help because you, you want to help drive you know, people's eyeballs to that because that's how you're going to get paid for it. And also you might get paid through the event itself because if you're doing it online only, the um, digital distributor doesn't have necessarily anything to do with that event. So that's, that's down to you. I know it's a bit of work, but... It helps, you know, it's kind of marketing. Simple question, if not too rude. What were your budgets? Because I'm getting a feel from the trailers of what the film's like, but is, would you mind revealing? <laughs> if you don't want to, you I, don't I, have I'll to. Say, I'm happy to say. So our production budget for convenience was £80,000. We then raised 20000 to distribute it. So all in all, it was a hundred grand, and that's from start to release. 
I mean, I think they're all they're all relatively low budget films, which um, they but worked really hard to raise the finance for. And I think the challenge of raising money for uh, an eighty thousand um, pound film and a million pound film is equally challenging. Sometimes the kind of resource that you get from public funders or from corporate financiers or from people who have a commercial interest in putting money into your budget can actually increase the level of your budget too. So it's not really a level playing field when we talk about what budgets people work from. Do you mind if I just ask a further question? I have a film in development in Northern Ireland screen. I am not so... I'm not worried about revealing what our budget is. I'm curious to know why you're not revealing it? The reason that producers don't want to tell you what the budget is, is there's a couple of reasons. One, because if you have a film that has um, finances involved or you've got an actor of note involved, um, there are, you're bound by confidentiality for the actor, for example, because you can start to work out what that actor earned or that they were in a lower budget film. So actually your distributor, your sales agent might not actually want it to be known. I think, yeah, I think it's more like a sales thing. It's mm-hmm. like it gives it a value. Yeah. So then like what it, is, what, what it becomes worth like abroad yeah. and in terms of international sales is determined by what is out there in terms of like what... Whereas I would say it, like it should just be judged as like a film and, you know, like lots of people... What, what Warbuck cost was not really what Warbuck cost. It was like people waved there. Well, here's a good point as to why I talked about the film, because uh, the budget of the film, because actually we didn't at first and you're, you're kind of... That's the learned thing. Don't really tell anyone your budget. However, that ended up being one of our biggest marketing tools when we released the film. I went onto Sky News and I talked about the film and spontaneously I just went, you know what, I'm going to say what this budget was. And actually what spiralled from me talking about that was all these articles that spread. And actually that ended up generating a lot of publicity for the movie um, because I referred to it as being... the cost of one shot of a of a Harry a Potter, Potter movie film, yeah. And, and, Not sure and, which shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you understand my point, right? And so, actually, me saying that, although when I was saying it, I knew I shouldn't really be saying this, but actually, I just went for it. And what happened is it helped us. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you all for contributing. I hope you found it illuminating. I certainly have. Thank you. Thanks to Tanya, Lauren, Dominic and Ray for sharing their insights. You can hear from some of our outstanding debut nominees from the 2016 BAFTA Film Awards. See the videos and more at bafta.org forward slash guru.